again. Yeah, a time in our worship where we can rally around the truth. We take up the Word of God, and this morning we pick up where we left off last week. We're in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 13. And as you're turning there, let me just give a few introductory remarks to set the tone If you know anything about Jonathan Edwards, that 18th century English Puritan who ministered in New England, you know that he stands out as one of the most influential and insightful theologians of that century, and really of all of church history. Yale University, which is where Edwards held a brief presidency, has compiled a complete works of Edwards in 26 volumes. These are not thin volumes either. Uh, We're talking over 60 pages for each volume. I'm sorry, 600 pages. Left out that zero. It's an important zero. It's amazing that one man, writing with a quill in an inkwell, no doubt sometimes by candlelight, could produce that much material, and all of it as insightful and profound as it is. If you haven't read any of Edwards, I would hardly recommend that you do. What's more amazing, however, is that if you had a couple of lifetimes to read and digest his works and could sum up Edwards in just one word, it would certainly be love. That's right, love. That is that. That is the one characteristic of God that Edwards really emphasizes in his voluminous works. The love of God. And of course that would include God's love toward us and the way that we show love to him. Maybe that sounds surprising to you with Edwards being the scholar par excellence that he is, his reputation in scholarly circles. We expect something more sophisticated and theological sounding like supralapsarianism or theodicy or impassibility that comes with many sub-points and sub-sub-points in its definition. Nope, love doesn't sound or seem rather to rise to the stature of ivory tower, but it rings true that someone like Edwards who was so gifted and uh, insightful and spent countless hours in the Bible, tearing it apart and putting it all back together again for our edification, would see the summation of biblical truth as God's love because this is the way that Jesus saw it. That's right. To love God with all one's heart, mind, and strength summed up, of course, the first Uh, commandments of the Decalogue, and together with the second commandment, to love one's neighbor as oneself, summed up not only the rest of the Decalogue, but the entire Old Testament. And of course, it, it, it is the essence of Christianity, to love God as we ought. Faith is all about loving God and loving neighbor as we ought. Sounds simple, but not so easily applied. Jesus also summed up the meaning of discipleship this way. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said that if you wanted to follow him, you must or he must be your first choice in all matters of life, before family, before friends, 
even before yourself. Otherwise, forget it. Don't even bother following me. His condescension, his incarnation, his crucifixion were all acts of love toward us. He showed us how to love. He said that our love for him would evidence itself in our love for each other, which would be the distinguishing characteristic of the church in the world. The Apostle John would later write in his first epistle about our love for God and how we demonstrate it by loving the body. There could be no question, and should be no doubt, that everything that God has done, is doing, and will do for us is because he loves us. Now, it makes absolute sense to us, then, that the most important ingredient in a successful, victorious, strong walk of faith is loving God as we ought, making sure that he's the sole object of our affections in all our activities under the sun. And it makes further sense that when that isn't the case, we have, and we have divided loyalties of a sinful kind, we hurt our walk of faith. We slow down in the race. We cower in the good fight. Jesus asked, do you love me? He means it in the absolute sense. And never have these four simple words impacted those who heard them or hear them now than when Jesus utters them. They can put your back up against the wall like so many of those who would be followers of Jesus in the first century who didn't really love him who when they discovered just what Jesus was asking from them, that they eventually followed him no more. Those words can also admonish us Christians when we're floundering. Can even, they can even pick us up out of our depression because of the severity of some sin, as in Peter's case, who denied the Lord publicly with cursing and swearing. Remember? Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I do. Jesus said, then get busy ministering. The writer of Hebrews understood the absolute way in which Jesus calls for us to love him and that this love, possibly only, possible only by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, is by far the most powerful motivation there is in the walk of faith because the one who loves cares more for the one he loves than he does himself. Even the world understands this to some degree. Think about this. A mother who is deathly afraid of the ocean will nevertheless not hesitate to jump in and save her little toddler whose raft drifted out of its small little tidal pool and into the open water with the incoming tide. In that moment, she overrides her fear for sharks and jellyfish and other undesirable sea creatures that lurk under the turbulent waters with an, with an absolute love for her helpless child. Love cancels out fear. This child is all that she can think about, not herself, not anyone else. And it's the principle of perfect love casting out all fear. Of course, when John said that, the Apostle John, that perfect love cast out all fear, he was 
talking about the fact that Christians need never fear God's judicial judgment at the end of time because they're now the object of his love. Well, that's such a great and comforting truth. But in a more general sense, it's also true that love overrides fear. It does, in really every instance. For example, that which we love, which we worship, we serve. Jesus said so himself, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And we will move heaven and earth for what we absolutely love, not fearing any of the consequences. Just ask an addict about that, or a substance abuser. They will often endanger their lives just to get a fix, what they love so much, what they worship. You thought addiction was strictly a medical problem, right? <laughs> no, large part of it is a misplaced affection. It's lusting after something to the point that it rules your life and you become fearless in your pursuit of it. Some positive examples? Sure, those, kids, uh, those who love their kids so much will do anything for them. You've heard that before, right? And you know what it means. Now listen to this. Jesus said that those who love him will absolutely will not hesitate to obey him absolutely regardless of what happens. Their love for him will override their fear for any consequences of obeying him. I use this principle um, a lot of times with young preachers. I can say that now because I'm not a young preacher anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they have the, uh, the jitters about speaking in front of crowds. Now, this usually happens with uh, young seminarians, you know, coming right out of school. And they've they got the jitters, their, their knees are knocking. And I say, uh, so Pastor Bob, what, what do you recommend? And I say, well, listen, if you, if you have the jitters, it's really because uh, your love is misplaced. And they kind of look at me strange. And I say, yeah, you, you actually care more about yourself you care about yourself too much. You care about how you're going to be perceived when you're up there, right? That, that, that they'll judge me or they'll, they'll make a, that I'll make a mistake and people will laugh at me or, or they'll criticize me for the way I might pronounce a word or, or whatever. And my advice to them is very simple. If you love God enough, you'll carry out your God-given responsibility. And if your love for your audience is enough. If you love them enough to tell them God's truth, then you'll forget all about the jitters and you'll do your responsibility. Love God so that you will love your neighbor enough to tell him the truth. Everything kind of falls away after that. You really don't care what you look like, what you sound like, what people are thinking, because all you care about is them and that they hear God's truth. That's how perfect love overrides fear. The writer then wants his audience to find their love for Christ, their greatest motivation to run the race of faith well. So let's see how he does this. Now, I have to tell you that this section deals with verses 4 to 9, and I was initially intending to cover all of it with you this morning, but I decided to take our time with <clears throat> the truth of verse 4. We're going to look at only verse 4. So rather than give you three uh, particular major truths or points. I'm giving you only one today, so that should be easy to remember. 
And that truth is this, be faithful to your first love. That's what the writer's really saying. In essence, in all essence, from verse 4, the writer says, be faithful to your first love. Let's read it. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers will be, will God will judge. Now, you're looking at that, you're re, you've, you've heard it read, you maybe followed along with me, and you're remembering the point that I just enumerated, be faithful to your first love, and you might be scratching your head a bit. The writer begins this section with a reference to marriage, which to some seems a bit random and out of place. I mean, he is addressing the entire body, so how does, how does this benefit even singles? for that matter. And, and more broadly, why is it in a section on personal maintenance of the faith? How does this verse nurture all Christians' love relationship with Christ? Well, the short answer is that it speaks to the importance of a chaste life for God. That's C-H-A-S-T-E, chaste. A chaste life. How And how honoring marriage helps to promote that kind of life. Starting to see the connection. Before I show you exactly how <clears throat> that works out, I think it's important that I give you just a, a few words about biblical marriage. We've got to paint just the portrait a little bit so we're all on the same page about marriage. Then we'll appreciate the connection. Just uh, five or so things I'd like to say about marriage. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. It's a covenant of companionship. God created woman because it was not good for man to be alone. That's what it says in Genesis. God's solution to loneliness is marriage. And so he joined the man and the woman together in a covenant relationship, and I would say a covenant of companionship. Now in matrimony, man and the woman promise each other, you will never be lonely as long as I live. That's the covenant. That's what we're saying. Uh, right there, before God and witnesses. That's the covenant. Contrary to popular belief, love, sex, shared interest in goals, and kids do not make a marriage. Those elements are important, yes, but they can quickly dissolve, and kids, well, they become adults and move away. And when that happens, marriage, marriage that depends on those things will break up. It'll dissolve. But a covenant is binding. A covenant is binding. So marriage is a covenant of companionship. Number two, marriage creates a oneness between two people. Now this is a very special kind of oneness, a, a unique oneness, unique to marriage. This oneness is unique to married couples. It's unparalleled in any other relationship, human or animal. Moses explains it in Genesis 2 as a leaving and a cleaving. There was nothing in God's good creation that qualified for Adam's counterpart. So, God took Eve from Adam himself, took, took her from a rib of Adam's rib cage and made woman. She was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, is how he put it. The two were each other's perfect counterpart. Only together could they achieve God's universal commands to be fruitful and multiply and rule and subdue the earth. Together. Only in marriage could they enjoy, then, intimacy, sex, and procreation. 
God looks at a married couple as one, and so should we. Number three, marriage is the norm. It's always kind of gets people a little bit, uh, catches them off guard. Marriage is the norm. The fact that God instituted it between the first man and the first woman at the beginning of human history and not later in some other context establishes marriage as the norm. The only exception to the norm is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul argues that God calls some to be single. Number four, marriage is complementarian. It's a word that you might not be familiar with, complementarian. It has to do with headship. This also grabs a few, a little, a little off guard. God assigned headship to the man and a submissive role to the wife as his helper. Now, Paul makes this very point in 1 Corinthians 11. The man is the image of the, and the glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. This is in a context that Paul talks about in worship in 1 Corinthians. Now, he obviously is talking about the first couple, right? Though Adam and Eve had equal standing before God as people, we don't deny that. We're all equal in the sight of God. As people, they had different functions. And Adam's authority over his wife is plain when he gives her her name. Remember how he God brought her to him and he named her. Naming in the ancient world was a sign of authority, just so you know. Also, that Eve usurped her husband's authority at the fall is evident in the curse that God places on her and would haunt every wife from then on. And that is, their desire would, would, would be to rule over their husbands. And it would conflict with their husband's authority. The battle of the sexes began in Genesis 3. Paul mentions this curse specifically in 1 Timothy 2, where he explains why he forbids women to teach men in the church. He says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. So you have two arguments there. One is an ontological argument. Adam was created first, then Eve. But then you've got this, this, this reference to the fact that man was not deceived. The woman was. Um, what does this mean? Paul prohibits women to teach men in the church, not because women are more prone than men to be tempted that is ridiculous, all right? That's ridiculous. Rather, it is because in order to teach men, women must go outside God's ordained boundaries of submission. This is something, remember, that God instituted. It was wives are to be submissive. So when they do go outside those bounds, they become vulnerable to being misled as in Eve's situation and they would become vulnerable in mishandling the word of God in this situation. Now let me just say, any Christian, man or woman, 
who ignores God's ordained boundaries of submission and usurps God's ordained authorities, government, local authorities, judges, elders of local churches, is outside the will of God and therefore vulnerable to being misled. So it's the function and the abuse of it that would lead a woman to be misled in handling the word of God in this particular context, and that's what Paul's getting at. With this brief portrait of marriage, then, and we could say a lot more about biblical marriage. I wish we could. This is not a series on marriage, but let's, let's see how honoring marriage becomes a means to a chaste life for both married and single Christians. This is addressed to both. Let me say, on one level, both married and singles should honor marriage because it provides the precedent for conducting ourselves in any godly relationship. The marriage relationship provides the precedent for conducting ourselves in any godly relationship. Let me explain that. In all proper relationships besides marriage, Christians enjoy varying degrees of intimacy, right? Varying degrees. All depends who we're relating to. There could be next to no intimacy. Or it could be a great amount of intimacy. Um, also, there's a varying degree of companionship. We're, we, we're sort of com companions with, with those at work. Uh, again, varying in degree. So with those that we have acquaintances with, not so much. Those who are friends, quite a bit. Those who are family, a lot. But they vary in degree. And keep in mind, never uh, it's never to the degree, though, that it would be in marriage, the way that God has intended it. Intimacy and companionship is heightened in that relationship. And certainly sex is reserved for marriage, according to the Bible. In that respect, then, we might say that marriage, the marriage relationship is the most profound of all human relationships and therefore foundational for all other relationships and society, the building blocks of society, family. If married couples can relate in the most intense way to each other, then they should have no problem and no excuse relating to others outside their marriage in God-honoring ways. And children, children learn best from godly parents how to love, honor, and cherish someone else, how to be selfless, trustworthy, and faithful. And single Christians who discover that God's will for them is to remain single, they can take their cue from godly married couples when it comes to considering the interests of others as being more important than their own. Marriage actually shows singles how they should relate and treat each other in godly ways by establishing what is and what is not proper for them to do. This is why singles should honor marriage, the marriage relationship every bit as much as married couples should. Of course, they both honor it in different ways. Married couples honor marriage by not jeopardizing what makes marriage unique, their oneness, the commitment by committing adultery, by not living for each other, living for oneself instead, by not pursuing illegitimate and unbiblical divorce. That's how they honor marriage. Single Christians 
hold marriage in high regard by not engaging in activities that are unique to marriage. They won't have sex, they won't have children, and they won't live together. <laughs> and also by not being selfish or taking advantage of others in a relationship. They'll not seek to be married when they're convinced that God has called them to be single, nor will they avoid it if they're convinced that call, God is calling them to be married. Marrieds will not live like singles, and singles will not live like marrieds. So both married and single Christians understand God's way of relating to each other in ways that are pleasing to God and best represent him to the world. Now, I don't have to convince you that our culture grossly distorts marriage as God has ordained it in his word, if not totally marginalizes it. It's further proof that when people go outside of God's norm for living, they place themselves in unnatural positions where they sin and misrepresent God and his established order of things. In Romans chapter 1, for example, the consequence of rejecting God's order of things is clearly seen there. Once God, uh, once God gives depraved humanity, those are people who reject him outright, he gives them over to their own lust. They pursue human relationships that are unnatural. We believe that morality really sets Christians apart from the world. It does. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Gentiles in this context simply refer to unbelievers. Immorality and licentiousness are characteristics of depravity, generally speaking. According to this passage, depravity is by nature licentious. It's promiscuous. Paul is Consistent then with his teaching on this in Romans 1, where he explains that God has given depraved people over to degrading passions so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. This is what they want. This is what they'll get. The challenge before us, beloved, is to be light in the darkness. Maintain our moral standing and sexual purity in a culture that is totally immoral and totally sexually deviant. And this is an important part of running the race of faith. But it's, all, it's also more than this. Christians should also lead the way in morality and demonstrate it to the world. Doing, doing that in a culture that has totally redefined true morality as immorality and true immorality as the new morality is not easy to do, to say the least. But we have to fight for absolute truth in this area, beloved. We have to fight and contend for the truth. The bottom line here is that when married and single Christians relate to others in the way that God has ordained, with their marriage relationship as the guide, they practice sexual purity. They keep themselves chaste. They maintain a good testimony of godliness before the world, and they honor God. And this is how honoring the most profound human relationship that God ordained can help us lead a chaste life for God. As you might expect, it does even more than this. 
This brings us to the second level as we kind of wind this down to a close. It nurtures our love relationship with Christ, which is the most profound spiritual and supernatural relationship that God has ordained. So I would say that both married and single Christians should honor marriage because it illustrates their union with Christ. Christians, both single and married, practice sexual purity in their lives, not just because it's proper for them in all their human relationships. There is a vertical, spiritual dimension to marriage. It's a living illustration of the union that we have, each of us, with the Lord. It is the picture of the Lord and his bride, the church. That relationship is what I'm talking about. I firmly believe that God instituted marriage with this ultimate and grander purpose of being a living picture of his relationship with us. Now, that's that's not strictly taught in Genesis 1 and 2, but it is throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God often speaks throughout it about Israel as his bride and his relationship with her as a marriage, right? God said to the nation of Israel through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 54, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And in Hosea 2.19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and compassion. Now, in the New Testament, we find the exact same marriage metaphor as well to illustrate the marital relationship that Christ has with his church. Ephesians 5 is the most obvious place. Paul uses human marriage as an illustration of the spiritual supernatural relationship we're talking about. And in Revelation, Apostle John says that God will present the church as a chaste bride, that's us, to Christ in heaven. Is it any surprise that the New Testament refers at times to the sins of the church as a form of spiritual adultery? No. Listen to James 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, James and the rest of the New Testament writers use Old Testament language here. Listen to, here in in, in this context is, is what I'm getting at. Listen to Jeremiah 3, God speaking. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. The reason God speaks of sin as spiritual adultery is that in many cases, sin is a breach of the first commandment. Maybe you've never thought of it this way before. First commandment is, have no other gods before me. When Old Testament believers mix biblical truth of the Torah with pagan thought or Levitical worship with pagan practices or praised pagan gods, they were unfaithful to God. And it's interesting that unbelievers and even Christians who are doctrinally deficient often characterize God in the Old Testament as some despot. You know that, right? It's this 
It's this, or, this, this caricature that, that people want to place on God of the Old Testament. It's the God of the Old Testament. He's different than the God of the New Testament. Really, uh, the truth be told, God presents himself in the Old Testament to Israel as her lover. Yes. Now you might understand why Jesus refers to himself in Revelation as the church's first love. And why sins that Christians commit often fall into the category of spiritual adultery. This is certainly true in the context of Hebrews, which highlights the theme of drifting and apostasy. This congregation of Christians had, had many who were guilty of spiritual adultery. So, for the record, Hebrews 13.4 uses marriage, the most profound earthly human relationship that God ordained for us, to teach all Christians in the church to keep themselves chaste for God, their first love, the most profound spiritual supernatural relationship that God ordained for us. You need to have a relationship with God, of course, in order to appreciate and honor marriage. And when you do have a relationship with Christ, you will honor marriage, whether you're married or not, because it points to your marriage to Christ, your love relationship with your first love that came by no other way than through the death and resurrection of Christ, his shed blood and the day you came to God trusting in the work of Christ alone is the day you were wed to him. He is our husband, and like godly marriage, he has established a covenant of companionship with us. Jesus promised to us in the new covenant that he would never leave us nor forsake us, right? And we have a oneness with our Lord, a union with Christ, like we have with no other, where we are part of his very body and have the same mind, and we, have this, we seek to have the same thoughts and the same desires. The saved relationship is also the norm. By that I mean God had always intended to relate to man in this, in, in this loving way, which he, which he, uh, he does through those that he has saved through redemption. The exception to salvation, then, is condemnation, and it is not what anyone should ever want. Our marriage to Christ is also complementarian because he is our head, and we submit to him as he rules us with all joy, by the way. In light of this, the writer's reference to marital fidelity and sexual purity in maintaining our faith is totally appropriate. Well, the writer now sets us up very nicely then for the next truth that has to do with our personal sanctification. And for that, we will have to wait till next time. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us, for giving us the word of God, for giving us the indwelling Holy Spirit that we might understand it, that we might crave your love and this intimate relationship with you. We pray that we will be diligent to nurture it as we run the race, as we fight the good fight, as we remain and, and forge ahead on the, on the, uh, the narrow way. But we will uh, keep our, our affections set 
on the throne room of God and that we will, uh, we will rejoice all the way knowing that our first love has gone before to pave the way and is not only waiting for us, but is working in us to get us there for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen.